This is The Weekender on Y95, brought to you by Eris Yarmouth. Good morning and welcome to The Weekender on Y95, brought to you by Eris Yarmouth, your one-stop healthy home center. I'm Jacob Postlewaite, The Weekender for September 3rd, 2022. Coming up this hour, I speak with director Nadine Pequeniza about her documentary film, Last of the Right Whales. Kevin Northup speaks with local artist Danielle Mahood about her new mural on Water Street in Yarmouth. And Tri-County Regional Center for Education Executive Director Jared Purdy joins us to discuss back to school in the Tri-Counties. The Weekender returns in a moment on Y95. Welcome back to The Weekender on Y95. I'm Jacob Postlewaite. The documentary Last of the Right Whales was released last year. It follows a group of people trying to help the North Atlantic right whale an endangered species of whale with less than 350 remaining. The film follows their efforts to document these animals, keep them safe in the water, and develop new fishing gear to keep them out of harm's way. It's a powerful story, and I'm happy to be joined by the director of Last of the Right Whales, Nadine Pequeniza. Thanks so much for joining me, Nadine. Hi, Jacob. Thanks for having me. So first off, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm a director-producer based in Toronto, Canada. Uh, my company is Hit Play Productions, and I've been making documentary films for just over 20 years, uh, mostly around social issues, uh, so things like prison reform and education, healthcare systems. And this is actually my first documentary about wildlife. Uh, some people call it an eco-doc, but I really see it as a documentary about us uh, because it all has to do with cohabitation and how we can live uh, and share space uh, with animals like the North Atlantic right whale, which are currently critically endangered. Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about, you know, what drew you to want to make this film, because you're also the writer and producer of it. Yeah, well, it was really the headlines, you know, that were coming out in 2017. So many of these whales died in Canadian waters uh, during that summer, and it really caught my attention. I'd actually never heard of the North Atlantic right whale at that point in time. And so as I was following the story and realizing that it was us, you know, we were really the reason that this species was facing extinction. Um, And not because of whale hunting, you know, that was banned for the species in 1935. But more, it really is because of accidental deaths. You know, we're accidentally um, running into them with ships and entangling them in fishing gear. And so that really drew me to the story, you know, the idea that we could actually change our behavior and prevent a species that's been on this earth for millions of years from going extinct. I really wanted to tell that story. And you were able to film the whale migration. Uh, So tell us a little bit about what it was like to document these animals in their natural habitat, just, you know, going about their lives. Yeah, it's actually very difficult to film a critically endangered animal. Um, because for obvious reasons, are protection measures. So you can't get within 500 meters of them in Canadian waters and 100 meters in the U.S. And um, so just getting permission, uh, you have to get permits either from DFO in Canada or NOAA in the United States to even get close enough to film them. And then you can't dive with them. That's absolutely prohibited. There's no way to permit that. And so we were really relying on drone footage uh, once we were able to get the permits. And then, you know, when you're talking about less than 350 animals in a range that 
stretches from Florida all the way to the Gulf of St. Lawrence, you're really um, looking for a needle in a haystack was a term commonly used as we were filming. And it's one of the reasons that, you know, we filmed in all of the critical habitats and we worked with scientists and researchers who are very familiar with these animals, some of them having worked with them for decades, you know, 40 years. And we really relied on their collaboration in order to get the imagery that you see in the film. Yeah, well, let's talk about some of those people you worked with. You did work with quite a few different people involved with, you know, raising awareness about these animals, trying to protect these animals. So tell us a little bit about some of the people you worked with. Yeah, well, I'll talk about the folks from uh, your neck of the woods in eastern Canada. Moira Brown from the Canadian Bear Institute probably one of the leading scientists on North Atlantic right whales. Uh, we went out with her and a research trip that has been going every year since 2015, since the whales have started to come into the Gulf because of climate change. They're moving further north in search of food, which is one of the reasons that um, we had so many deaths in 2017 because we weren't expecting them in those large numbers in those waters. So protection measures like uh, speed restrictions and uh, fishing zone closures during the migration were not in place. Um, so we filmed with Myra Brown on that research trip. The lead scientist on that trip was Kimberly Davies, who's from the University of New Brunswick, um, and she's doing some groundbreaking research on how climate change is affecting the distribution of their food. Uh, because these enormous whales, you know, they're 60, 70 tons, but they feed on a very tiny species of uh, plankton, zooplankton, called the copepod. And so Kim is trying to figure out how that uh, redistribution of plankton is impacting the migration route and the feeding habitats of right whales. Um, so we filmed with both of those scientists were on the same fishing vessel, actually a fishing vessel that after the crab season um, charters their research vessel. So that was an interesting um, connection between the fishermen that we documented in the film, someone named Martin Noel, he's a snow crab fisherman. Um, in that fishery, along with the lobster fishery, are sort of the two biggest threats to right whales because of a vertical line that stays in the water. Um, it's a fixed line fishery, and that's what the right whales, they're baleen whales, you know, they feed with their mouths wide open. So it's hazardous for them if there is a line um, stretching from the surface of the water to the bottom of the ocean. It can easily become entangled in their baleen, wrapped around their heads, their fins, uh, which can really inhibit their movement, but also their feeding. Um, and that's also something that we documented in the film, you know, a recent entanglement, a whale that four hours earlier the scientists had photographed year-free, um, severely entangled and uh, really thrashing, trying to get free of that gear. Um, and then someone else we also filmed with on the East Coast is Nick Hawkins, who is a wildlife photographer. Um, and he was really on a quest to document uh, what was happening with the right whales was similar to us, but he wanted to get underwater footage and so had gotten special permission um, to use an ROV, a remotely operated vehicle that he had built um, that could be used in a safe way to try and capture underwater imagery of these animals. Uh, so we followed Nick on his quest to do that. Um, and then we filmed with other scientists down in the States, you know, in the in the calving ground, which is 
coast of Florida, Georgia. Um, we went out there with scientists trying to document new calves being born each year because, you know, in 2018, there were zero calves born to this population. And so all of these threats that they're facing is really posing uh, a problem for reproduction. Uh, each year, there's fewer and fewer whales being born or the mothers are not having calves at the same interval. So whereas it used to be every three years, now it's more like every six, seven, and up to 10-year uh, spaces between the time that uh, a female can get pregnant again. And that has to do with those stresses that we're talking about, entanglement and shift strike, but also with food availability. So, um, so yeah, by filming in all of the critical habitats, we were able to tell the complete story of what's happening to the species. And uh, once you had that, you know, you had all that experience, you, you did all those things. Uh, what can you tell us that you took away from this experience? Uh, what did you learn? I learned that, uh, you know, there's things that can be done. I've learned that, you know, in some areas in the States, for example, Cape Cod Bay, which is the feeding habitat right now for right whales, almost 60 or 70 percent of the population is going there. And we know that from um, Charles Mayo, who's working with the uh, studies, and he's documenting how that is becoming an increasingly important region. And in that bay, fixed line fishing has been prohibited during the migration. So it's essentially eliminated, nearly eliminated the risk of entanglement in that bay. And you see the impact of that on the species. So you really learn that there are things to do, you know, um, and if it's not a closure, during the migration season, there's new fishing technology that's being tested. So when we filmed Mark Noel, the snow crab fisherman I mentioned earlier in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, he's testing rollers gear or on-demand gear, they call it. So it actually keeps that vertical line submerged with the trap on the bottom of the ocean. And by pressing uh, or sending an acoustic signal from the boat to the trap on the bottom of the ocean, they can release a buoy which floats that line to the top of the to the top of the water column, so it pops up on the surface, and then the fishermen can retrieve uh, their catch, whether it be crab or lobster. And this means that that risk of a whale becoming entangled in that line is greatly reduced because it's only in the water column for a matter of minutes instead of being left there for days um, when fishermen come back to pull their traps. So really, I saw that, you know, things can be done. And right now, with speed restrictions, you know, at the time that we were filming, calves were hit by smaller vessels, so recreational boats under 45 feet. And right now, in a lot of U.S. waters, their speed restrictions don't apply to vessels under 65 feet. Well, NOAA has just introduced legislation that would make it apply to smaller vessels. Um, because we understand that, you know, the whale or calves, uh, they can be seriously injured by these small fishing vessels or recreational boats that we take out to enjoy the ocean. So just by slowing down uh, to 10 knots, it can make a huge difference uh, for the survival of this species. 
and the film was released in September of last year. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about you know what the response to the film has been? Yeah, it's been wonderful because we've been able, we've had a long window. You know, normally when you produce a film for broadcast, it goes to television quite quickly, um, partially because of COVID and the backlog of films. You know, it's scheduled, our film has been scheduled for January of next year to air on CC, The Nature of Things. And so we've had a year uh, to take the film to festivals. We did a theatrical release. So when we released the film, we did it with uh, the help of organizations who've been working on this issue for a long time. So the Canadian Whale Institute, the Canadian Wildlife Federation, Sierra Club, Foundation Canada, um, Ocean North, Pew Charitable Trust, IFA. I mean, really, all of the the groups that have been involved in this issue. And so we did that because at each of these screenings that we had, we wanted to have people on hand to answer questions. Because um, at the end of the film, people do have questions. You know, they want to know how they can help. Uh, they want to know if people are actually offering ideas uh, about how fishing might be done differently or potentially tagging whales, how you could greater um, protect, put protections in place if you knew where they are. I mean, people really wanted to get involved. So it was important to have that interaction. So that's been great um, as part of the release. And the response is wonderful. You know, we've got an email campaign. If you go to the website, lastoftherightwhales.com, you can see um, all of the different activities that we're doing around the release of the film. So one of them is an email campaign where you can, you know, write to the Canadian uh, and American governments to talk about um, your support for continued protections for North Atlantic right whales. Uh, we also had a naming competition that's just uh, closing because, you know, what's interesting about these whales, they've been studied for so long that the, the scientists have pretty much identified every existing individual. And they can do that because they have um, colossities or roughened patches on their head that are unique to each whale. It's like a fingerprint. And so they follow the individual lives of these whales uh, over generations, you know, from grandmothers to grandcalves. And uh, so part of, the, part of the campaign that we've been doing is, one, teaching audiences about that, but also giving them an opportunity to suggest names from one of the whales that became... Um, featured in the film because of, uh, you know, something that um, we ended up filming, that entanglement of 4615, it's a five-year-old male. And so uh, we told a little bit about that whale's life story, um, you know, who his parents are, uh, the fact that he was raised by another mother, which happens sometimes uh, in this population. And so uh, we invited people to offer names for that whale, and, and the name will be chosen at the Right Whale uh, Consortium by scientists this year in October. So, yeah, the, the response has been good to the film, and um, we look forward to showing it to more people. So wrapping up here, uh, what do you want people to understand about the situation with right whales? Yeah, I want them to understand um, that we can do something about it, you know, that we can the extinction of this species. Uh, I want them to understand that it's urgent. Uh, you know, with all of the changes happening on our planet because of climate change, these whales are an example of that. Um, and it's 
it's not the only great whale species being impacted by the availability of food. You know, gray whales on the Pacific coast have been dying because they're having difficulty finding food. Um, similar studies are being done with humpbacks. So, you know, the warming temperatures, the impact that it's having on ocean currents, um, we don't see it as much as we do the forest fires and the flooding. But uh, all of these things are, are um, really coming to a head. And I think by watching the film, people can have a deeper understanding of that. Um, and also by protecting these animals, they can come to understand how that in turn nurtures the planet, you know, because in a, they are fertilizing uh, phytoplankton, uh, which is so important to uh, the health of our planet, you know, as a producer of oxygen and really the life base of the ocean. So, yeah, there's lots of takeaways. Um, but mostly I want people to get involved in, in seeing how they can support protections for right whales. For sure. And where can people find your film? Yeah, so people can see the film. Uh, we're still doing these community screenings in the U.S. and Canada. If you go to the website, there's a screenings page. So last of the right whale screenings, and you'll see where uh, screenings are coming up. Next year, the film will be on television. So it'll be on CBC's The Nature of Things in January. They haven't announced the date yet, but we know it's coming in January. It will also air on PBS Nova. Um, so that's where folks can see it here in North America. And then it's it's going to be on Arte as well in Germany and France. And so we're hoping this film will have a long life. You know, um, we've created a study guide so it could be used in schools and um, and community screenings to continue and then hopefully available on VOD platforms after that. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me, Nadine, and discussing Last of the Right Whales. I think this is really important and uh, it's a documentary everyone should check out. I got to see it and I think it was really good. You mentioned the drone shots earlier and those were just fantastic. So uh, I think it's uh, it's a really good film and everybody should definitely check it out. Mm, that's wonderful. Thank you, Jacob. I really appreciate it. That was Nadine Pequeniza, director of the documentary Last of the Right Whales. The Weekender returns in a moment on Y95. Welcome back to The Weekender on Y95. I'm Kevin Northup. We have an artist in our studio uh, this morning to talk about a, a beautiful new mural that's uh, on Water Street in Yarmouth. When you come off the Yarmouth Ferry Terminal, if you're coming off the cat, you're going to see it right away. It's going to catch your eye. It looks fantastic. Danielle Mahood's in studio with us this morning to talk about, uh, I guess, the inspiration behind that and how it, you know you create a mural like that. It's obviously a talent that, uh, that I certainly don't have and many people probably don't, but uh, we want to know about that creative process too. So Danielle, thank you for being here and, uh, and sharing your story about it. Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. Danielle, let's start with a little bit of background about yourself, how you got into you know the arts and, and wanting to create big, beautiful pieces like this. Well, um, I've kind of just been into art since I was a really little kid. I've, I've always had a pencil in my hand. I've, uh, I'm a self-taught artist. I started painting when I was pretty young, doing portraits. I still do commissioned artwork, portraits of people and pets and everything. I'm a graphic designer by trade. I went to school for that, and um, that really helps me a lot along the process with the with the design aspect of it coming up with the uh, idea for the bigger piece and how I'm going to lay it out and everything when you see you know a wall like that and I think you mentioned that 
it was it was just a blank wall, and that's something you really wanted to pursue to try to create something there. Yeah, that this wall specifically that we're talking about, um, I it was kind of up to me to take a look around town and see what walls might need a little sprucing up, and I contacted the business owner myself because what a great location for coming right off the boat, and that's what you're going to see, like a, a welcome to our town. It's it's certainly a, a great piece for sure. When did you start? Uh, when did you get the idea, I guess, for it, and how long did it take you to to bring that to fruition? They were. Um, we went through the the Yarmouth facade committee's um, mural grant program for mm -hmm. this. So I kind of had that in mind as I was working on it, and I I spotted this building back in probably. February, we were trying to get applications going, so that's when I kind of tried to figure out who, first of all, who owns the building, because obviously I need permission, um, so I that was my first step, asking them if they would be willing to see some ideas from me to see if I, see if they wanted anything painted on the building, mm -hmm. and they were very, very welcoming of that, so that was the first step in the process. And it's great to hear they were so welcoming of that. And you talked about the uh, the mural program through the Facade Society. And we see so many of these buildings in downtown Yarmouth being spruced up with color over the last, what, five, six, seven years. Yeah. It looks really, really nice in downtown Yarmouth. Uh, you know, what do you think of you know how the town looks right now Is it from an artist standpoint with the colors and everything on, on the buildings? It's so great to see everything becoming more brighter and it just reminds me of how things used to be like when I was a kid and the boat was coming in and people are walking around, there's excitement. It just adds to the entire, the entire vibe. Exactly. And you being from Yarmouth, you know, uh, you grew up here. Uh, like you said, you've, you've had a pencil in your hand pretty much mm -hmm. all your life. So uh, this was certainly, certainly a calling for you that you wanted to do. Um, and, and, and back to this particular piece, um, I noticed it popped up and I, I was like, wow, you know, who did that? That's, that's amazing. So, uh, are you getting that kind of reaction from, from a lot of people? I, I'm getting a lot of good reactions. I have had a lot of people stopping by while I'm painting, which I love. It doesn't bother me if I'm, if I'm up there working and you want to stop and chat as long as I can still keep, keep working on it. Uh, <laughs> That one, I, I painted the entire thing during our crazy heat wave, so mm. my paint was drying faster than I could get it up on the <laughs> wall. So as long as I can keep working, I love it when people people stop and tell me how excited they are to see these things popping up. Everyone's really positive about it. I guess a heat wave is good for one thing, drying <laughs> up paint pretty quick there, so that's good. And and so the, the mural is, is complete. When did you finish it? Um, I finished that like the last week of July, I believe. Yeah. I've got a, a clear coat on it. So it should last nice and it should last quite a few years up there, especially with our, with our salt water and air and everything. You really want to make sure the paint's going to stick. Oh, for sure. And, uh, uh, for you, uh, like you said, the creative process behind it, when you saw it for the first time, did you have an idea of where you wanted to go with it? That building in particular it has been painted a very bright blue, so I wanted to use that to my advantage as my sort of base coat. So I had that in mind when I was thinking of what to put up there. Um, the facade committee is looking for specifically nice bright colors, some, some ocean-themed things, some fishing-themed from the area, 
some some of it they're doing like historical pertaining to Yarmouth so I kind of had that in mind when I was thinking of my design if you look at the Sweeney's Fisheries website one of the first fisheries mentioned is sword fishing which a lot of people don't think of maybe when they think of Yarmouth but it's a big part of our history. It is, uh, for sure. And, and it's not just lobster. We don't yeah. just specialize in that, right? You want to branch out, of course. Uh, and, and that's great. So so that base coat was kind of there for you already to kind of go with. Um, and I noticed there's a, there's like a, a, a clamshell on the bottom right corner. And there's a quote there, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. What, what was that? I, I like to have a little bit of a quote, like people like to get their pictures taken in front of it. So I put it down there for everyone to stop and and get your selfie taken in front of it. And it says, happiness comes in waves, which I think everyone can kind of relate to. Especially here. Yeah. Especially here, no question. And, and something, a message that we need, you know, after probably yeah. a, couple, a couple of tough years during the pandemic and everything. So certainly nice. Do you feel that'll help with maybe some, some tourists uh, who are coming off the boat? They'll see this and they'll want to stop and, and take that photo. Definitely. I, I had a lot of tourists stopping, people that were checking in to get on the boat, people that were getting coming off the boat, and had seen it and I wasn't there. They came back to see if I was still working on it just to talk to me. I actually took a trip over myself a couple weeks ago and people on the boat were coming up to me saying that they had seen me up there working and and how great it was. So I've been getting a lot of positive feedback. Yeah, how's that feel to like to to get that feedback from, you know, Americans who are coming here for the first time in, you know, since the cats hasn't run since 2018 before this year. So, that's kind of the first thing they're seeing when they when they get to Nova Scotia, when they get to Canada and and that's your artwork. So, you know, how does that feel to to take on that role? It feels good. They're it's making an impact and and they want to see more. They're excited. Have you done more? Are there more of these? Where are they? And <laughs> And they're really excited about it. So it's a really good thing to get them to not just get off the boat and drive on by. They they want to stick around and look around. Definitely. I think we have a lot to offer here in, in the town, too, for them to, to look around. And, and that certainly helps if they want to, you know, stop and see that. And, and your other murals, you do have others. Uh, you were telling me you've you painted the one on Julie Mood's building and uh, one at Ryan's Electrical as well. Yes. Um Ryan's Electrical, I also had complete freedom on what I got to paint up there. They were really good with that. So that's always an artist's dream when you get a nice big canvas and you can paint whatever you want up there. <laughs> the process of it. Uh, let's let's go through that a little bit. So you see it. Do you kind of have to map it out on almost like a graph type of, type of thing, certain sections that you want to paint first? So my graphic design background kind of comes into play here. I take a photo of the building and usually I do my I work my design right on top of the photo of the building in Photoshop. So the business owner gets to see basically pretty close rendering of what it's going to look like in the end. Julie Mood um we kind of laugh cuz she gave me also pretty pretty much freedom on it and I didn't show her what I was doing. She trusted me. And the very last day, I, I showed her the picture. Here's what it was supposed to look like. And it, it's pretty close to what ends up on the wall. It's mm-hmm. kind of cool to see that part of the process for me, too, because I do my design and I kind of scratch my head for a minute and think, how am I going to make this work? But I I just somehow make it <laughs> make it work during the process. 
it, it must be, you know, uh, create a big piece like that. It must be challenging. It, you know, do you have to battle the elements too when you're when you're uh, doing these uh, these murals? And the elements definitely come into play. The the other two on Water Street, it's really cold in the morning before the sun comes over the buildings. Right. And then around 2 o'clock, once the sun is fully over the buildings, it's blinding. So those ones, I I had more of a time constraint because I didn't want to come too early. And then once the sun was was too much for me, I had to leave. This last one, I was pretty much in, in decent sun all day. And it I like the heat, so that didn't bother me. So... I, I really banged that one out pretty quick. So the, those factors definitely come into play. For sure. Um, yeah, and like I said, it looks amazing. The other murals around town too. Um, are you looking to, to do any more projects at this time or are you kind of scoping anything out? I've actually got another project on the go. I'm looking to start here as soon as the weather permits here. Um, up on Main Street this time. It's a building that's sort of being restored it's going to be nice bright colors and and this mural is going to be a little bit different style than than what we've seen from me so far but i i like to work in lots of different styles i do with my portraits i do painted in color or i do black and white so i like to i like to try a lot of different styles well, I'm sure it's going to look great, and we'll mm-hmm. look forward to that. And I wanted to ask you too about uh, you know you were involved with the uh, the Maple Grove students that helped uh, create the mural uh, actually around almost to the side of our building here at uh, at Y95 on the uh, on the other side towards Brown Street. So uh, that was done. What was it last year? That was done the year before that. Actually, the year before that. Wow. yeah. Um, so when I took on that project, I didn't actually realize that I wasn't going to be allowed to be in there with the students. And I, I was told afterwards that I had to do it through video call, which mm. is not something I'm completely comfortable with, but I really wanted to do it. So we made it work and it, it came out fantastic. I was so proud of them and they were so proud of themselves, which is great to see. I never thought about that COVID, right? Yeah. So you can't you can't actually be in the classroom. So yeah, yeah it really turned out nice, didn't it? And I yeah. remember the big reveal. Uh, everyone was so so pleased with that. How has the town been in, in support? Like Maramood and, and and council, they've been pretty supportive as well. I bet. Yeah, I think they they think the whole thing is exciting, and it's just another thing to draw people into our town. Definitely for you uh, as a mural artist uh, and, and an artist in general. Um, and anything else you might have coming up or any works that you like to display that, that aren't murals? Um, I'm always working on something. I've got graphic design stuff in the works. I'm, I'm always working on my portrait stuff. Um, I'm, I'm just always busy. <laughs> <laughs> You've always got something on the go, and yeah. that's the creative process, I guess, right? Yep. There you go. Well, that's perfect. And if somebody, if there's an artist out there that wants to contribute, as like you have, to the town, what what advice would you have for them to kind of take that route? Um, well, you, you just got to dive in. Um, a lot of it is figuring it out as I go. Nothing, nothing's too big. You can always, you can always scale it up. So you just got to get your foot in the door and find someone that's willing to give you a chunk of canvas and, and work your magic. 
Definitely. Well, thank you so much for your time here, Danielle. To talk more about this mural, and uh, it was important that we wanted to, to get this out there more, too, because uh, we just want people to go down and see it. It helps with tourism, like we said, and people coming off the boat and seeing that for the for the first time as the kind of the first image when they uh, come to Yarmouth. And if they haven't been for a few years, well, it's something new uh, for them to see as well. So, uh, Danielle Mahood, a local artist here, uh, painted a mural down by the Yarmouth Ferry Terminal. If you haven't seen it, uh, what are you waiting for? <laughs> go check it out. <laughs> Thanks, Danielle, for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. The Weekender returns in a moment on Y95. Welcome back to The Weekender on Y95. I'm Jacob Postlewaite. I'm joined today by Jared Purdy, the Regional Executive Director of the Tri-County Regional Center for Education, and he's here to talk about the return to school coming up in the Tri-Counties. Thanks for joining me, Jared. Thanks for having me. So how are you feeling about the start of the school year? Extremely excited, Jacob, and extremely positive. Um, it, it's been a it's been a great summer the last couple of weeks with our leadership team and and staff back in buildings today. Um, the the tone is positive. The the vibes are positive. Everybody's excited, just for a more a, a kind of a normal reopening to the school year. Um, you know, the past couple of years have been a little complex and challenging. Uh, with the pandemic. And and while we're not completely out of the woods yet, uh, this year certainly has a different feel to it. And uh, the sense around the region in all three counties that everybody's excited and ready to go. Awesome. Well, that's cool. You guys have been getting together, you know, discussing things. So tell us a little bit about what's been going on in those sessions. Yeah, so we do a number of things. Um, Last week, we had what we call our August leadership session. So that's where we have all school-based administrators, um, our regional team. We get together for a few days. And it more just is a visioning exercise over those two days to to set the course for the year. Uh, You know, talk about those big guiding pieces for us. You know, talk about the the provincial inclusive education policy, our system improvement plan here in Tri-County. You know, meeting the needs of our students and, and their families and just really setting a, a good positive tone to, to open up the school year. And obviously we, we talked to our different departments, uh, you know, our operations department, I can start with them. They, they've had an extremely busy, busy summer with, you know, transportation routes, uh, schools getting ready. The, the custodial staff at our schools have been amazing. The schools look, look great. Um, you know, we've done some infrastructure work across some of the schools, obviously working again with our, our ventilation systems to make sure those are up and ready to go. Um, human resources, finance, um, all divisions are ready to rock in Tri-County. So, again, it's been a, a really good, positive feel around the office and in our schools. Well, that's great. And you mentioned COVID right off the top there. And, of course, that's something that's still on a lot of people's minds, you know, going into this school year. So uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, the COVID situation. How are you feeling as we're about to start school? Sure. I think it goes without saying that, you know, the pandemic's not over. We're we're not completely past COVID yet. So, you know, I want to acknowledge that. Um, and with that, we always put the well-being of our staff, you know, students, families first, and we're going to continue to work and take the guidance from public health as we always have. The province has been a great support. Um, you know, they've got their back-to-school website now updated, uh, and it still has the links, you know, to the updated guidance from public health relating to COVID-19, and, and as always, we'll use continue to use that advice. Um, and we've worked with, with our schools and our staff and obviously with our families around, you know, what that looks like if you test positive, the guidance from public health, and just going through those best practices for individuals to stay home. 
you know, when they're feeling unwell and if they have symptoms. So, and it's no different than in any other year when the flu season hits. You know, it's the same advice that, that we've given in the same kind of flu approach. Um, I think it's worth noting masks are, are still in play. Um, while they're not mandated, um, you know, student staff and, and visitors who, who choose to wear a mask, they're going to be supported. And we'll, we'll continue to make those masks available in, in all of our schools and buildings for those who, who choose to wear them. And again, I go back to our operations staff. Um, they've worked extremely hard and diligently to, to make sure that ventilation systems are regularly checked, cleaned, and obviously where necessary, um, repairs and upgrades and updates. Um, and HEPA filtration units are, are still going to be provided to those, those classrooms and rooms and schools that are without active ventilation systems. So in speaking, you know, with that COVID um, with COVID, you know, similar to last year, we are we are going to continue to avoid those policies and practices, procedures um, that would encourage kids to attend school while they're sick, and that includes the loss of credit provision and, and as it relates to the attendance policy and exam exemptions and those pieces. So, you know, we want to remind families that if, if you're not feeling well, um, you know, we want you to, to get well and stay home while those symptoms are present, and schools will support families through that. Yeah, it, it it's very much, you know, it's become sort of the thing where you have to make the decisions, you know, for yourself, for your family, what's best for you. But, uh, of course, when it comes to school, it's about protecting everybody Absolutely. and making sure we're all able to, you know, everybody's able to get to the school and, and to go safely. For sure. Yeah, and I wanted to also, you mentioned, uh, I want to chat about those ventilation updates. You mentioned that uh, because, of course, the province has been supporting schools with making those making those upgrades and, and improvements where they're needed. Uh, and I wanted to ask about where we're at here in the Tri-Counties as far as that goes. Are, are most schools now where they need to be in terms of ventilation? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and the bulk of that work, again, would have happened uh, over the course of COVID in our schools. Um, so, you know, the, those schools that don't have active ventilation systems would, would continue to have, you know, the HEPA filtration units. Um, but those are a few and far between in our region. Um, again, we've done a great job um, ensuring that that work has, has taken place. Um, and, and that goes along with all kinds of different things with operations, you know, new boilers, heat pumps, hot water heaters, um, you know, all kinds of the, you know, new motors on the air handling units. A lot of work goes on behind the scenes over the summer and, and the months in between by our, uh, our operations department. So I'm, I'm really appreciative of the work that they've done. And, we all, and I also want to chat a little bit about uh, staffing levels in the schools. You know, we're seeing worker shortages affecting, you know, everything across the board. Uh, and I just wanted to ask you uh, how we're doing in terms of the number of teachers that we have for the schools here in the Tri-Counties. Yeah, so we're we're doing fairly well in Tri-County. Um, you know, staffing season went well for us. The time timelines were, were well handled by our human resources department. As always, our, our principals and our other hiring managers did a great job. Um, so for the most part, you know, we, we have our, we don't have very many unfilled positions. Th- those that we do have would be a, a couple specialist positions here and there, um, which, which happens from time to time in our region and in others. Um, but as far as teaching staff goes, we're, we're in decent shape. As always, uh, you know, we'd like to have more. Um, we, we have a sub list that's, that's ready to go. We've got our retired teachers that are for the most part ready to come back and, uh, and, and support us subbing, which is always much appreciated, appreciated, sorry. And, uh, the union continues to support us with that. 
Um, in terms of uh, student enrollment, you know, we, we do have a bit of an influx that, that's been a trend across the province. So we, uh, you know, not only just myself, but some of the others in our, in our division here are, are watching that closely. We're working with schools on um, those areas that have a bit of a spike in student enrollment. And, um, you know, we, we follow along with the provincial uh, policy piece there where we continue to track that up, up to and including September 30th. And, and beyond that is where um, the province would help support us in the event we, we require, required uh, an additional teacher or two. And um, again, we'll continue to watch that um, as the month of September progresses. But, uh, you know, for the most part, we're pretty happy with where we sit as far as our staffing goes. Um, you know, our staffing positions are, are for the most part filled. Um, but again, we, uh, we're always in recruitment mode. We want to see as many, many teachers in the Tri-County as possible. And you mentioned substitutes there. Um, are we seeing any shortages at all when it comes to the amount of substitutes that we have? Um, the, there's no question that there are challenges. Um, shortage is, is a, it's a challenging word to use because it is so unique depending on where you are in our region. Um, you know, we definitely like to have a, a deeper substitute list. There's no question. And, and our, our recruitment group is, is working hard with that. And on any given day, we do have to be careful with, you know, the things that we're offering. We want to make sure that uh, we have bodies in front of students. And as a region, that's been our commitment over the past couple of years is we're obviously we're not going to see a school go without, um, whether that's an internal, um, an internal pivot that they do to, to make sure somebody's there. Or, and in the past, we've, we've continued to use um, regional office staff when needed to go in and, and fill a, any vacant position should they arise. But right now, um, again, we're, we're in decent shape. We, we have a, a, a decent sub list, but uh, you know, I'd be lying if I told you that uh, I wouldn't like to see a few more. Oh, absolutely. You know, just uh, as we said, more people in there just helps alleviate those pressures. It helps, you know, teachers who are able to take the time off that they need to. So, of course, having more is always better. Sure. And uh, I want to also ask, you you know, how are teachers feeling as we're going into this year? Again, the feedback's been been really positive overall. Um, you know, everybody's sounding like they're ready to go. Um, again, it it does have a bit of a more normal feel this year, and, and for us in Tri County, we just we got off to a great start. You know, over the summer, just with with kind of a, a fresh direction. Um, kind of some fresh outlooks on our system improvement plan. Uh, obviously, being a, a region the size that we are, it, it carries a lot of advantages, and, and that included in that is relationships. So, um, I had the you know the pleasure of talking to a lot of the teachers over the summer, and I've talked to a good number of them in the last couple of weeks, and and it's just it's it's refreshing that uh, there's just a nice positive feel out there. Our, I can't speak highly enough uh, about our school-based administrators, the job that they've done. Um, just that growth mindset is, is ever-present, uh, the inclusivity, all those pieces. Um, it's, it's just there's a big feeling of just we're ready to go, and uh, there's just a, a nice, good, positive energy out there. And another thing I wanted to ask about is uh, something I've, I've seen uh, and I've been following a little bit is uh, there's been a, a bit of a campaign by teachers at Meadowfields Community School uh, to get some new playground equipment there. Uh, they're kind of on, I think they only have about four swings left, and the rest is kind of, that that gear has fallen into disrepair. So I wanted to just ask how you feel about that situation and, you know, how important it is to have that playground equipment for the kids. Sure. So obviously this one this one's close to home for me. Uh, I've got two daughters that attend Metalfields, Lila and Callie. 
So uh, obviously very close to, to Meadowfields Community School. Uh, what a great school, great school community. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, to say I'm supportive of this project would be an understatement. Um, I've been in touch with them, have uh, obviously helped out with some, some uh, documentation and information. When you stop and think about that, right, you, I think some of us, myself included, you think of Metalfields as it's a brand new school. It was built in 1999, right? So it, the, the plate iron equipment has served as well. Um, but some of it, you know, right now it's, it's no longer meeting the safety guidelines. So um, the school has now made a push. They, they're doing some donations. They have a nice uh, donor wall. Um, they're just talking a lot about accessibility, about equity, um, the benefits of play. So they do have they have a nice brochure out there called the Metalfields uh, Playground Project with a with a great vision. Uh, Lori McClay and and their SAC and the administration have led that work, um, and they talked uh, again about um, the new design, the commitment from our government, uh, provincial government around making uh, things accessible. Um, so they're asking the community for help through through donations. Um, you can donate online. You can donate uh, via mail in person. Um, and they're doing a, a bunch of different fundraising there. So, um, and, and this isn't uncommon in our region and in others. We've got some examples. Uh, you know, one example that stands out is are the communities in some of the Shelburne counties where I know some local uh, local folks from the fishing industry have helped out schools to donate playgrounds and equipment. Because, you know, Jacob, the reality is that nothing lasts forever and time catches up to us, unfortunately. So um, schools and, and their communities you know, they really come together for this and do a great job. And um, the way we view accessibility and outdoor play now has changed over the years. So um, Metalfields is, is off to a great start, and um, I'm excited to, to be along the ride with them for this. Yeah, and it's really important what you mentioned, you know, the community support coming for the schools, you know, because it's, it's you get what you put into it, and you really it's really important for the community to understand that, you know, to have these things and be able to do these things, the community, they've got to support it as well so i think that's that's really an important point to mention there yeah definitely and and i think my my own experience is is when Yarmouth Elementary School was opened and and we did a similar push uh, for an outdoor play space, and it's it's always important to note that you know while they are school playgrounds, they're also community spaces, right? They're used after school hours, they're used during the summer, and the benefits of outdoor play obviously are are, are well known. So um, that's why communities seem to be so fast to to jump on board and help out. Um, and and again, we we view those as as community spaces and uh, we encourage that they use outside of school hours and uh, again I knowing metal fields the way I do and knowing the folks that are involved in that work uh, this will certainly turn into to something pretty special and uh, they're they're early in their in their process but um, they've already got some, some great work underway and and again I, I speak to their administration often and uh, with my own my own two little ones going there um, I'm certainly on board to, to be a part of that too and we've also had a number of new principal appointments uh, starting late last school year and a bit throughout the summer uh, at St. Mary's Bay Academy, Digby Regional High School, Islands Consolidated School, Meadowfields, of course, which we've been talking yep. about, and at Plymouth School. And I wanted to ask how you're feeling about those. Really excited. So, um, you know, the the downside to that is, uh, unfortunately, you have to say goodbye to some special people. Um, you know, we've, we've got a, a wide range of administrative experience out there, and we've had to, over the course of the last few years, um, we've had some of our 
our strongest leaders uh, shift into retirement. Um, we do our best to keep them around subbing-wise. And, uh, you know, so, so that is the downside. You do have to say goodbye to some, some folks who have really, you know, even personally helped guide me and mentor me over the years. Um, and, and in and out, you have folks. We had some folks uh, from, uh, from out of province who joined us over the years. Um, so whatever the case may be, um, we, we've got some new, new faces. Some are new to administration. Some have have made the shift over um, from a different administrative role in region and out of region. So we, we had a day just this week where um, Janice McNutt, she's our Director of Programs and Student Services, hosted a, an orientation day for our new administrators. We had our group of new administrators come in along with some folks that aren't new who just wanted to take part. And that was that was one of the indications I got, Jacob, of just how positive and exciting things were. We had, um, you know, we had our finance, our human resources, student services, operations, you name it. We had kind of a crash course for our new folks. Um, we also um, do some pretty special work in this region around collaborative teams for our administrators. So we pair up administrators based on um, whether it's class or sorry school configuration um you know where they're situated by county and we do some collaborative teams that that Janice leads so we take care certainly to take care of our new folks and um those that have been with us for a while are always quick to jump and step up to help out and network and collaborate so definitely some new faces um some of those that are new to positions are not new faces they're just in a different seat so i'm feeling extremely positive this year um i really couldn't ask for a better leadership team in our schools um and you know we meet with with uh, our administrators monthly and leadership teams are are meeting almost daily just around best ways to support and provide ongoing um, mentoring and coaching. So it's, again, I, I've said it a few times, it's it's definitely feeling positive and there's, there's just an air of excitement out there. And wrapping up here, is there any other information uh, you want parents to be aware of heading into the start of school? Um, I think, you know, our schools do a wonderful job uh, communicating with our families. So once school starts, schools will go back to those methods of, of school newsletters, uh, school Facebook sites, Twitter, um, and our region does the same with Facebook and, and Twitter. Um, the, you know, as always, I, I would I would encourage people to stay in touch with with uh, the public health documents that are out there. That that provincial return to school website is is always a great resource. Our own Tri County website, tcrce.ca, has a lot of important information on there. Uh, you know, first and foremost, the calendar, the school calendar, is published there. Um, one change to our calendar that's worth noting is um, we have changed our collaborative learning days. Um, in the past, we used to have um, early dismissal on 14 days at 90 minutes early. Um, we've shifted those to eight days of early dismissal of uh, an even two hours. And um, the, the rationale around that was a little more consistency for our families twice a month you know, versus once a month. We're hoping that creates some alignment uh, for our families planning-wise. Um, and that collaborative learning time for our staff is just, it's huge. Um, it, it's, it's staff who are meeting regularly. They're sharing best practices. They're looking at student data and evidence and working collaboratively to uh, improve practices. Um, and that's for all of our educators. So we're appreciative of our families' understanding for the need for those days. Um, and any other information, you know, there's going to be a lot of information coming out, obviously, through the schools. Um, but again, I think, I think for me, it's just that, 
that we want uh, families to, to be as excited as we are for the return to school. And, and uh, I certainly know I've got two little girls that are just itching to get back. So uh, as exciting as today is with the staff back, I really can't wait to get out to a couple schools uh, on Tuesday to, to see those smiles. Well, it sounds like you're ready to hit the ground running. Jared, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, chatting about back to school. And uh, I guess we give an all look forward to the start of school next week. I really appreciate you having me, Jacob. And uh, for the families listening, welcome back. We're excited to have you. And we're, we're all looking forward to a great school year. That was Jared Purdy, Regional Executive Director of the Tri-County Regional Center for Education. And that's our program for today. Thanks for listening. For story suggestions or to submit feedback, email news.cjls at radioabl.ca or call our news line at 902-749-1919. To listen to archived versions of our program, visit us online at cjls.com and click on The Weekender. The Weekender is a production of the Y95 Newsroom and is brought to you by Eris Yarmouth, your one-stop healthy home center.